Scripture today comes to us from Revelation chapter 5. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, singing with full voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the sea, under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, singing to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Before I begin, let me share a prayer concern with you. Hope Thamert, one of our members who was here earlier today, has fallen. She fell here, just out the back of the sanctuary. She's been taken to Piedmont Noonan. Claudia Nash has gone to the hospital with her. Um, we're working to get in touch with her son, Dan, right now. So many of you know Hope, and certainly we want to uh, lift her up. Let's have just a moment of silent prayer and uh, remember her at this time, and then we'll continue our service. Let us pray. Hear our prayer, O Lord, for hope and for those who care for her at this time. And we pray for complete healing and recovery in the name of Christ. Amen. When I began to pray about and think about what to preach about during this season of the year, Easter season, Easter tide is sometimes called from Easter day until the day of Pentecost. We often refer to this in the church calendar of the church. Here's the great 50 days. 40 days from Easter until the ascension of Jesus back into heaven. And then 10 days from the ascension until the great day of Pentecost when the Spirit came and the church was born. So during that time, I was trying to decide what, what to talk about. And I look at the lectionary. I use it some of the time, or about half the time, but I always look there to see what the suggested scripture readings are. And often I find myself landing on the gospel lesson or the Old Testament lesson. I love those stories. And then maybe the psalm and then the epistle reading. But for this year, the epistle reading, the letters for this season are from the book of Revelation. So I've chosen to look at those for a few Sundays now. Actually, not a book so much as a letter, which is what the word epistle means. Revelation, folks either, it seems to me, spend an inordinate amount of time worrying about it and talking about it, or they just ignore it altogether because it confuses and sometimes frightens. The more I thought about it, the more it made sense to me to look at these passages from Revelation over these weeks during the Easter season because there are there words of hope and words of encouragement. And isn't that what the Easter season is all about? A time of resurrection. 
Easter is more than one day. It's a season of hope, a season of encouragement, a season of resurrection in the church and in the world that God loves so much. Several years ago, one of my colleagues was the first person that I heard say this. I don't know that it was original with him, but he said the book of Revelation can be summed up in two words. God wins. God wins. And I, I like that. That's an oversimplification perhaps, but uh, I think that's very important. God wins. And as we talked about a few weeks ago, if God wins, everything is going to be all right. So I want to say something now about the background and the setting of the book of Revelation, not in great detail, but just a few things. It's a unique and often challenging letters. The book of Revelation provides a series of visions from Jesus the Christ to reassure the believers of God's power and God's great care for all of us. These visions come to a servant of Christ named John, the author of Revelation. John was a pastor. He was concerned about the seven churches that are mentioned in the letter in Asia. And also, he was a prophetic spokesperson for God, speaking words that were sometimes uncomfortable and sometimes harsh sounding. He was most likely a leader of the church who was exiled to the island of Patmos, and he was exiled there because he had spoken out against the Roman emperor who we believe at the time was Domitian, the Roman emperor who preferred to be addressed as Lord and God. And John wasn't going there. Domitian served or ruled would be a better word, I think, from AD 81 to 96, about 15 years. In a time of hardship, John promises that God is firmly in charge. How easy that is to forget. And God cares deeply for all of us. We'll be filled with hope and we'll be given power to endure any affliction that might come our way or come into our world if we can hear and see what God is up to and what God is doing. At the beginning of the letter, the book of Revelation, John is anxious to show the readers how God wants to reveal God's plans for the world. Like many of us, much of the time, John and the seven churches in Asia Minor were struggling with senseless suffering in the world that raised serious doubts about God's justice and God's mercy. And I know many of us are struggling with that right now in regard to what's happening in Ukraine and in other places around the globe. The last decade of the first century was a tough time for everyone within the, the realm of the Roman Empire. Brutal civil wars had wreaked havoc, had destroyed the peace and order of the empire, damaged food production, damaged commercial trade in that part of the world. People were desperate to survive political oppression, economic exploitation, as well as natural disasters, human atrocities, earthquakes, and famine, and plagues, and violence afflicted entire nations. It was a tough time. Christians in the province of Asia Minor suffered even more misery than folks in other parts of the world because of their belief that Jesus Christ was the Lord. He was the one who they would bow down to. And because of their strong belief in Jesus and their critical attitude toward the rulers and the politics and the religious practices of the larger society, life was made very difficult. Rome's absolute authority and 
It was there to ensure some kind of strong social cohesion to hold things together, that kind of oppression. And participating in the imperial cult, imperial cult, those who believed that the emperor was a divine figure, was a test of political allegiance. It was not a matter, matter of choice of religion, choosing what we're going to believe and not believe, what we'll say and not say or do and not do, but it was not a choice or else there would be severe consequences. And those who refused to participate were suspected of treason and subjected to severe punishment, especially under the emperors Nero and Domitian. Tough time to be a Christian. In that social political climate, John and his fellow Christians collided head on with the religious authorities and local authorities. They honored Jesus Christ as the only divine Lord, and they refused to bow down to the cult's imperial celebrations. And as a result, John and his churches were put under extreme pressure and were vulnerable to charges of disloyalty. There were economic and social consequences. John made his choice, and he endured the consequences on the Isle of Patmos, where he was in exile. And although well aware that Christians were experiencing hardship at the hands of Caesar's agents. He was convinced that God saw their suffering and cared deeply about their oppression. They had not been abandoned or forsaken like some of them felt like they had or like we do when times get difficult. John believed that a merciful God would neither allow God's people to be tempted or tested endlessly or for evil to afflict the innocent folk forever. Then and now, God has a plan. God has a message for faithful believers. There will be a day when all that is evil and hateful and hurtful will be destroyed or transformed. And there will be peace and joy. We're promised in a new heaven and a new earth. Now to show John the plan and the message, God granted him a rare glimpse into the courts of heaven the divine court in heaven, a series of visions. John was frightened and he was excited by what he was allowed to see by the visions that came before him. He was inspired by what he witnessed. What did he see? And when we ask what did he see, then we begin to move into the passage that was read just a few moments ago, our, our verse for today, verses for today. In today's reading, the angelic host of heaven, they're singing praises to God and to the Lamb. When I hear that, I think about that song that we sing here often during the season of Lent. What we're under us love is this. We sing to God and, and to the Lamb, and we join our voices with those from ages past. Carl Holliday says that it occurs as the last panel of that grand vision is being revealed in chapters 4 and 5. We're introduced to the vision through a door opening into heaven itself. And we catch a glimpse through the vision that was revealed to John. We are first shown the magnificent heavenly throne, the throne room, splendidly furnished. The letter of Revelation has many references to the throne of God, but there are references throughout Scripture to God's throne. Psalm 47 and verse 8, God is king over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. 1 Kings twenty-two nineteen. then Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all of the heavenly host standing before him. 
some to the right and some to the left. And then Isaiah 6.1, we know that passage a little better. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, sitting on a throne. The hem of his robe filled the temple. Can you imagine the, the size of that? Back to Revelation now. Surrounding the central throne are the 24 other thrones. 24 elders sat there clad in their priestly attire, flashes of lightning, peals of thunder around the throne. We're in the presence of the divine before whom all the elements, all the earth's quiver and shake. The heavenly court includes more than the 24 elders. Encircling the throne are the four living creatures. They resemble a lion, a bull, a human, and an eagle. These are strange visions, aren't they? Each has six wings and is covered with eyes. And you remember in the Isaiah passage, it talked about the cherubim, the seraphim had six wings. There was something significant about that picture and that eye. They pour out unceasing praise to God who sits enthroned, and the 24 elders bow down in unison. There's an elaborate, lavishly furnished heavenly court. They're genuflecting in unison as they praise the one who is at the center of all things the eternal God who made the universe. And then if we read along and listen and pay attention, our eyes are drawn to the right hand of the enthroned God. It holds a scroll written on both sides and sealed with seven seals, another significant biblical number. A book so thoroughly sealed that it can contain only the very deepest of mysteries. But there's no one in the entire heavenly court to break the seal. And then out of the misty background emerges the character, the figure of the lamb with all signs of having been slaughtered, seven horns, seven eyes. And he moves toward center stage in this vision to the heavenly court. And they pay him homage that they had previously given to God. And their song expresses confidence in the ability of the lamb to break the seals and his sacrificial slaughter in which his blood was poured out, qualified him, we're told, to break the seals. Oh, very mysterious and marvelous and beyond imagination. And then we come to chapter 5 and verse 11 where our passage actually started today. The heavenly court has lavished praise on God who sits enthroned above all. And then it directs its attention to the slain Lamb of God. The term Lamb of God first appears in reference to Jesus in John's gospel, I believe, in the first chapter. You remember John the Baptist is standing with his disciples and Jesus is approaching. And John says to his disciples, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then as the Lamb of God, Jesus offers his blood on the cross, a perfect sacrifice to bring healing and reconciliation and forgiveness to all who believe. The Latin term for Lamb of God is Agnus Dei, and that's a part of our worship, part of our communion ritual. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Merciful God, take away our sin. Look on page 30 when you get a moment in the hymnal and you'll see the Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. Now the chorus of voices widens and it includes the angels and figures, heavenly figures not included in the immediate heavenly court and it goes on and on, the creatures and the elders. It's just hard for my limited mind and imagination to, to picture that. All these adoring beings bow down 
before the heavenly throne. The angel song echoes the 24 elders and the four living creatures. Praise to the slaughtered lamb who is now described with every imaginable accolade. Power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. But the circle widens even more, the circle to include not only the elders and the living creatures and the angelic host, but every living creature in heaven and on earth, above the earth and in the sea. The breathtaking opening vision reaches a conclusion. We're prepared for the scene in which the Lamb now breaks open the seven seals. The combined courses of voices pays honor to God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb who was slain. It serves as a means of calling our attention in closing to the two chief figures of the vision. And I hope you've heard this as we read through it a moment ago. God and the Lamb. I'll sing on, I'll sing on the throne and the Lamb. A final gesture and the four living creatures say amen and the 24 elders bow down. If we can allow ourselves for just a moment to imagine the imagery of this vision is overwhelming. The immense power of the revealing language engages us. And you can understand why this book has drawn people and affected people in so many different ways. And we find that we too are taken up into heaven to peer through the doors into the courts of heaven along with the seer, along with John. And we find ourselves singing the song of the heavenly host, holy, 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 and bowing down in reverence and awe before the eternal God and before Christ, the Lamb who was slain, the Lamb of God, whose cause has finally been vindicated. And we see ourselves as among folk of every nation, every race, every language, every people who are destined to serve God. The seer's vision, John's vision, becomes our vision about how we see the world and how we see God's heavenly kingdom. The throne of God it represents the power and the majesty and the holiness and the ultimate authority of the Lord God. And then there's the lamb. It represents the tender, merciful, compassionate, for us, grace of God, the heart of God. And as someone has said, the throne alone frightens us. The lamb alone makes us sad. But the throne and the Lamb together, that's the good news. That's the gospel. Amen.